back for another episode of the Building Equity Podcast for Real Estate Investors. I'm James Schlimmer. With me as always is Mr. John Bowens. How are you, bud? I am awesome, James. Excited to be back here. I want to jump right into it. For those that didn't see the last two episodes, we had BJ and Jeff individually. So if you're jumping into the Building Equity Podcast for the very first time, all right, you're going to get a ton out of today's session. Yep. But know that you can go back to the two other sessions where we take a deep dive with these two gentlemen individually. But before we get into that, James, why don't you introduce our guest today, our professional real estate investor guests? We have some great professionals. So let's start with, we have Mr. Jeffrey Grant of the law firm of Grant Cottrell Miller Myers. Jeff's an attorney, how are you? Doing well, how about yourself? Doing really well. So Jeff's a Florida attorney and he was on the show and we talked about asset protection and succession planning. And with us as well is Mr. B.J. Cottrell from Cottrell Tax and Accounting, who B.J. is a tax accountant who knows all the ins and outs. He works with real estate agents, works with real estate investors. We appreciate you being back again. No problem. Thank you for having me. Now, you guys now, you're seasoned professionals for the Building Equity Podcast. <laughs> Everything starts with real estate news that you care about. And as always, John, it's brought to you by IRA Title Pro. And I know you're familiar with some folks that use their IRA to buy and sell real estate. So if you're buying and selling real estate with your IRA on your next real estate investment transaction, try closing with IRA Title Pro. You're going to enjoy a full-service title company that focuses exclusively on IRA real estate closings, faster closing times on average of 11 days, and we can have a whole show about what shows up on title that could prevent those, just for the record. An experienced closing team that understands fractional IRA investments, awesome proactive communication, and competitive closing fees. If you want to know more, visit iratitlepro.com. And for that, let's go to our news of the day. And that's going to come right over here. This is from, uh, did we get the article? we got to make sure we cite the author. And this is just from a form. It says, Zillow's in the recovery room from Seeking Alpha. James, hold on that for just one second. Yes, sir. Just leave that up there. I want to make a slight adjustment. And get right back to it. And sure. Mm. Cool. This is the migration patterns they had in their thing. Like everybody's moving. <laughs> Look where everybody's moving. Yeah. It's. All right, James, you can uh, slide back in. All right. So the news that I think real estate investors should care about today, John, is regarding Zillow's in the recovery room. So Zillow just came out with their fourth quarter earnings call. They're pivoting, going after the real estate transaction. So folks, they just changed in November. their eye buying. Um, methodology or their business model where they're buying all these properties to hold them and flip them. Now they're moving along here. I find this to be interesting because there's a couple things you can learn from what Zillow's doing. And you can see where folks are moving is why I like this article. So I think if I was a brand new real estate investor and you talk about go to the, the real estate investment uh, mm -hmm. shows, find somebody that's more experienced and learn, why not look at what some of these meg mega corporations are doing and follow them and try to build your business model along with what they're doing. Right. And like Dustin was talking about, property appraisal. For those of you that didn't check that podcast out, check out our podcast on property values with Dustin. And he talks about that differentiator of looking at the algorithms that these big iBuyer programs are utilizing and how you know nothing can beat having the boots on the ground, having that mom and pop investor. That local knowledge. Local knowledge, right? Yep. So with that. We are sitting with two rock stars, Jeff Grant, who's a real estate attorney, estate planning attorney, asset protection for real estate investors, and Mr. B.J. Cottrell. So now we got the two of you here. Mm -hmm. 
This is normally what happens is I would imagine a real estate investor has to do these things one off and you get one side says do this and the other side says do something different. But getting into it, if I'm a brand new real estate investor, let's start there. And we've already established that we should operate our business with an LLC, right? What is it that asset protection wise you care about? Because he's here and we want to make sure that he agrees. Sure. Well, I, I think we're, you know, there's a lot of stuff with, you know, accountants and lawyers that kind of fall in this gray area, right, of, of common goal and trying to do stuff. So I think, um, you know, not watching Jeff's uh, thing yet, but, you know, have been working with Jeff for a long time. I think, you know, for the most part, those single member LLCs, those uh, husband, wife, single member LLCs, that's normally the starting place, wouldn't you say, for the first time investor? Absolutely. That's, the, that's one of your core building blocks. Right. Right. And it's the easiest, right? It's the easiest. And as we talked about, if you didn't see it, uh, the podcast about, you know, taxes, you know, we want everything to eventually be taxed in the individual's name. That's where we get the best tax treatment. So these single member LLCs are what they call disregarded entities. So it just goes per right onto your personal tax return. The next level would be like a partnership. If like me and you were buying a property. Yep. Again, those are pass-through entities, so those go down to your personal tax return as well. Um, and then the last one is the S-Corp. Um, again, we really don't suggest having any real property in S-Corps because there's some issues when you get other investors involved. If you do it, it's called a deemed sale, and there's some real headaches with that. But if you're in the dealing, if you're in flipping, and you're a dealer or you're in the business of flipping, the S-Corp can be a good vehicle as well for you. Okay, wait, so go back real quick there. If you're holding the property for a long-term rental, you're mm -hmm. not flipping, you're saying it's not a good idea to use the S-Corp designation for your LLC. Correct, and the reason why is that when you have something in an S-Corporation, let's say that I own a property 100%, a rental property, and for whatever reasons, I need cash. And I want to bring you involved. And now you're going to take half ownership and you're going to give me cash because I need to go buy another deal or whatever the case is. That is actually a deemed sale at that point in time. So what happens is you're, I'm going to have to pay taxes on that sale. Okay, And so the, the, you're limited in what you can do in as corporation. Also, how you distribute profit, how you distribute losses. All those things have to be done based on your shareholder um, membership, no, not membership. That's your agreement, right? Your operating well, shareholder um, uh, percentages. Okay. okay, where a partnership, and even more so the single member LLC, pass throughs, and you can do. You have much more flexibility in from the tax code standpoint of not creating a taxable event when you do things like bring on extra partners, when you do other things along those lines. So, at our firm, from a tax standpoint, we always suggest first the single member LLC or the husband wife single LLC. And then if it's me and you, two people that aren't related or not husband and wife buying, that you would then do a partnership, an LLC tax as a partnership. Now, let's, let's talk about, you got an LLC and we're talking about, from a tax perspective, a pass-through versus an S-Corp. If I have an LLC, I form an LLC, mm -hmm. can I elect to tax that as an S-Corp? And then could I change that if I wanted to and tax it as a pass-through LLC. Can you guys, either one of you, Jeff or BJ, elaborate that on that? So from a standpoint of can you do it, yes, you can. It, but it can, again, once it gets into the S-Corp, it can create a taxable event 
unelecting the S-Corp and moving it back. Now, if I wholly own the S-Corp and it's going to me wholly own, there's things we can do to mitigate that. Um, but for the most part, the answer is yes. But again, unless you're in the business of flipping or deal, you're considered a dealer, mm -hmm. we strongly suggest not to put it in the S-Corp. There's just no advantage right. to it. There's only disadvantages. Right. And from an asset protection standpoint to the outside world, it's blind. Right. right. You, right. you own the property in an LLC. And a creditor or a potential tenant or a potential litigant against you, they have no idea whether you own it uh, or whether your ownership interest is technically treated as sure. a partnership or an S-Corp. Correct. It's, it's entirely blind. Uh, the only asset protection point to make is that if there are more than one member to the LLC, your asset protection increases a little bit because now you're not a single member LLC um, and, and therefore you have a little bit more creditor protection. Sure. And, and that's interesting you bring that up, Jeff, because uh, some of our subscribers have been asking specifically about that. And they're, what they're asking is they're saying, I've been told that if I form an LLC, I shouldn't structure it as a completely disregarded single member LLC, but rather I should have a partner, whether that's a spouse or maybe I even bring somebody in as a, have it just a 1% interest, having a 1% membership interest in that LLC. So it's now a partnership and not disregarded. Is there, can you provide any maybe commentary on that? As a general rule, and every state is different. So I'm speaking just sort of a, from, a, from a common law, commonality standpoint. You cannot force somebody to become a business partner with you. So if there's a lawsuit and somebody's trying to take your interest and there is another member or another shareholder in that entity, you cannot force them to become partners with you. So there is some asset protection in having a partner. Mm -hmm. or another shareholder, depending on the, the, your corporate structure. Absolutely. Well, and from a tax standpoint, um, it doesn't make a difference, but we do like partnerships for the, you know, Jeff was talking about from the outside world, you don't see it, but things like banks and stuff like that, it is cleaner when you have a partnership because it files its own separate tax return. It kicks off K-1s for the partner uh, distributions based on their profit and stuff. And when I they want to see a copy of the tax return, I can show them the partnership exclusively from all my per personal stuff, and it's a little bit cleaner. The reason why it's not what we normally suggest for the the, you know, the beginner or the person getting into it is because there is the cost of actually preparing that tax return and doing that. So I hate trying to have people, you know, just tell them to do something because it lines my pocket, right? Sure. I want to look out for the interest. Right. But there are a lot of people that that works and, sure. and can help out for sure. sure. It is certainly cleaner from the financing and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the folks who are the first time investors who are coming through our office, they're not, they're not starting this process with a partner. Right. 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 They're starting this process on their own. Sure. Or with, the, or with their spouse. Now, maybe if they progress down the line and there's multiple properties mm -hmm. or they go from, make the switch from residential to commercial, we might be talking about a partner. But for the most part, we're talking about single member LLCs or single member LLCs with a spouse. Perfect. So we do got a couple questions that folks asked for you. So this one's gonna be for Jeff. This is from Mike in Ohio. It says, I already own three single family homes, all of which, and we understand that Ohio, Jeff's a Florida real estate attorney. Mm -hmm. Ohio could be a little bit different. So give a little bit of grace with that. Jeff, disclaimer, talk to an Ohio real estate attorney. Please and, do, yes. Okay. <laughs> so just in hypotheticals here as we're talking, we own three single family homes, all of which I own in my name. I imagine that means individually. How can I move these into an LLC? What does that process look like? And then what do I need to do from an insurance perspective? So first order businesses determine whether we're doing one LLC or three or four, 
right? We talked a little bit on the prior podcast about the series LLCs where you have basically a holding company and then the holding company owns the interest in each subsequent one. Okay. So if depending on which strategy you choose will make a difference in your direction. So let's, for the sake of our discussion, say that he's going to own them separately in an individual LLC with a parent LLC or holding LLC. So first thing you need to do is form the, the four LLCs. Right? We need to form them. We need to pull EINs, which was spoken about previously, for all of them so they could have their own banking records and everything else. Once that's done, the properties will need to be detransferred into each subsequent LLC. Right? So there'll be three title transfers. Sub concurrent with that, I'd recommend reaching out to your insurance agent and just having the conversation with them how best to structure this. Uh, oftentimes, they have to go to different markets if the property is owned in an LLC. Yep. That's all doable. You just need to have the discussion in advance because if you, the, your insur insurance policy is in your name alone and there's a claim, you're not covered. Right? You're, you're uninsured. Sure. So that insurance needs to be moved to the name of the LLC. So let me ask this question because this comes up all the time. It, at least I know in the title office, you have so-and-sos buying these properties individually. They're getting a loan. So they're, they're essentially saying, hey, I'm going to live there because they want the low interest rate to keep their costs down. And then they want to be able to say, hey, I want to transfer this into an LLC and I want to start the world of real estate investing and get a tenant in there. And I, can you just give a disclaimer? I, I want to say on why that's kind of a bad way to go about mortgage fraud, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's frowned upon, but I'm sure a lot of folks think I can get in there on the cheap and do this. So let me jump in and ask this question because I know I've gotten the phone call a lot uh, working in the title office and it's folks that are literally getting a mortgage. They're signing the documents that it's their primary residence and their strategy is to get the extra low interest rate, right? To keep the carrying costs low. And then they want to deed the property into the LLC and get the tenant in there and follow this wonderful strategy. And I think it's just important because you've got folks that are brand new in this and they're just starting on why that's a terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> so every mortgage has, and it has what's called an acceleration clause and a due on sale clause. An acceleration clause says that it, for a certain list of reasons, the lender has the right to accelerate the amount due on the note to the conclusion plus plus any unpaid interest. Which essentially just says, hey, we're gonna make the whole thing due plus interest. Immediately. Yep. And oh, by the way, if there's any tran unauthorized transfer or sale of the property, the entire note is due. So technically, when you're deeding a property from yourself individually to an entity, an LLC for the sake of our yep. discussion, that is a transfer and could trigger the due on sale clause. There's also a possibility, hey, look, Mortgage applications do get audited from time to time. If you immediately flip a property that you purchased and swore that, that you were using it for personal use, if you immediately do that and flip that into an LLC, there's, no, there's of course no promise or guarantee to this, Sure. but on a technical level, it is mortgage fraud. Not a good thing to do you are when you're starting on, your real estate business. You are, lying on, you are lying on a loan application. And I think the key here is what you said, James, is that when you're talking to that mortgage banker, when you're talking to your bank or lender, you're saying that that's a primary residence. And Jeff, chime in here. Is there a distinction between if I do that and I, or I transparently communicate that this is a secondary, this is, is going to be a rental property? Sure. 
the loans are underwritten drastically differently. They have different underwriting standards. They have different deposit standards and different credit standards. So yes, from a from a lending standpoint, there is a huge difference. Well, even from the interest rate standpoint, right? Isn't it? Yeah, the interest rate's going to be higher. Well, yeah, right? correct. And that's because there's more liability to to a rental than probably a right primary home. Right, and, there, and, and honestly, the default rates are likely higher. So in that case, the the I think important thing for people to understand is we're not here to say it's okay to buy a property and then transfer title to an LLC. But the most important thing you're doing is on the front end, you're being honest and transparent with your bank, or your mortgage lender, and exactly what you're doing. I think it's important to bring this up too because there's one, there's one thing if you buy the property and it's cash and you own this free and clear, you have a little bit more liberty. Mm -hmm. But again, as we've touched on, I don't know how many times since we've started this podcast, there is a lot of information out there about leverage yourself, get loans, do whatever you can to use other people's money and buy these properties. And I could just tell you from experience, hundreds of phone calls with folks that are literally trying to do exactly what we just said, right. don't do. And, and there is a school of thought and there are some people who will say, hey, look, if the loan is current, nobody's going to look. Doesn't, doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that you can't or won't get caught. But there are unscrupulous folks in, in, in all of our professions who, who will say, look, if the loan is current, nobody's going to be the wiser. Let me ask this question. This is uh, Susan from Florida. Is there liability, Jeff, if I don't have an LLC bank account and instead commingle my funds for my rentals with my personal bank account? Yes. I mean, at that point, you have ruined what little protection that you have in the LLC. Okay. You've basically commingled. Well, I'll take it a step further, too. I would argue that if she's commingling her funds, she's probably losing a lot of expenses she could be writing off as well. So we always suggest both from a legal standpoint, but even from just an organizational or a tax standpoint to keep separate records because then you won't lose some of those things that you could possibly write off as well. Makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And we got another question here, Jeff. Uh, this is from Texas. I heard that I have to hold security deposits in separate bank accounts. How does that work? Why can't I just, or why shouldn't I just take a security deposit and put it in my, my checking account? So security deposits technically do not belong to you. They are, the, they are the tenant's money. And every state has different rules on this, but in Florida in particular, the security deposit belongs to the tenant, and the interest actually on that money technically belongs to the tenant. Uh, I've heard that there are some states that actually, actually have um, bank accounts that are specific tenant security deposit bank yep. accounts. In Florida, we don't necessarily do that, but the tenant security deposit is supposed to go in its separate uh, interest-bearing interest bank account. Um, there's probably few quicker ways for a landlord or potential landlord to get in trouble than mishandling a tenant's security deposit. So how do you do that? Do you just set up a totally separate bank account that maybe is a non-interest-bearing bank account? Yeah. BJ, do you, what do you see, or Jeff? I recommend setting up a separate bank account and letting it sit. And so non-interest or interest? Interest-bearing. 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 So does that interest actually have to go to the client? Then? It actually has to go to the, okay. to the tenant. Because technically it is their money. So would you do, let's say you had five rentals, are you doing five different bank accounts with all your security deposits and or individualizing the accounts with each security deposit or or no? You could likely get away with one. I mean, it would probably make your bookkeeping easier to have a separate account for each, for each security deposit. But if it's an interest-bearing account and the only deposits in there are tenant funds, yep. you should be able to back into what those interest numbers are. My understanding is there's even online banks and software systems that handle this. Correct. So I don't have any specific references, but that's something as an investor starts to scale their business, mm -hmm. 
they can look at you know some more automated ways to manage those sure because the, the efficiency of putting fifteen hundred dollars in five different bank accounts you know isn't there right i mean there has got to be there's got to be some efficiency to how this done how this sure. is done and if we were doing short-term rental and you're doing vrbo right that software is handling the deposit right? i believe that company's even handling right? the deposits right i don't think you're holding the deposits i believe vrbo is holding the deposits for you right. All right. Well, so now if you hire a property easy. management company, right. then you don't have to worry about any of this, right? Because the property management thing. company is doing yep. everything for you. Yep. I can tell you on future episodes, we're definitely going to talk about the property management aspect because if you can get that smooth, as we mentioned, and you can be efficient, that's where you can really maximize your ROI and you're doing this, you're doing this right. Right. You know? Scale. Uh, we got a question for BJ. For a rental property, can you give an overview on depreciation deductions, which we could literally say, go back to the other episode, you did a great job, sure. and how that works and is beneficial to an investor. Can you touch on that? Yeah, so um, I use the example of if I buy a property for $275,000, okay? So when I buy that property, I have to depreciate it. And really, it's any assets. I think it's over 2,500 right now. You have to depreciate over the life of that asset. And for rental properties, specifically personal rental properties, commercial's a little different, it's 27 and a half years. So every year, you have to take depreciation on that property. So if it's $275,000, that would be $10,000 in depreciation that you have to take every year. Now, the positive of that is we actually get to write off that $10,000 of depreciation as an expense. And so that reduces, let's say we made $12,000 of income, that $10,000 of expenses would offset it, so I'd only pay taxes on 2000 Then if, sorry guys. No, the problem. Oh, no, it was a sneeze coming on me and <laughs> it just killed me. You can sneeze on the Building Equity Podcast. All right, we'll start at depreciation again. So from depreciation, let's say I buy a house for $275,000. Okay. The IRS requires me to actually depreciate that asset. They actually require me to depreciate all assets over 200, I'm sorry, $2,500, depending on the lifespan of that asset. And for rental properties, specifically personal rental properties, commercial is a little different, it's 27 and a half years. Yep. So if I bought the property for $275,000, that means every year I'm taking $10,000 of depreciation. Now, the good part about that is that's a real expense. It's like I get to use that to offset any of the income that I brought in. So let's say I have $12,000 of rental income. I get to use $10,000 of a depreciation expense, and that only leaves me $2,000 I pay taxes on. Yep. Or I have other expenses that could wave that off. Now, let's say I only collected $5,000 of rent. Now I have $10,000 of a depreciation expense. Now I have a $5,000 loss on paper, and I can use that to offset ordinary income, assuming that I can take advantage of the $25,000 exclusion that you're allowed to use. So if you are, let's say, at the highest tax bracket because mm -hmm. you're making $300,000 a year, sure. that could really help you. Yes. Now, there's some phase-outs to the special things, and there's some other rules. But in a nutshell, that's how depreciation works from the expense standpoint. The negative, right, so that's the positive. The negative to it is every single time I take that $10,000 of depreciation, I'm actually reducing the basis of that property. So let's say that I've had this property for seven years, and I take $10,000 of depreciation every year. At the end, I have a basis now of almost 200000 
instead of the 275 that I purchased it because I've used up $70,000 of expenses. So now if I sell it for 400, I would think, well, I'm selling it for 400, I bought it for 220 or 275. Yep. My gain's only 125,000. But because I took that depreciation, it's reduced my basis to basically 200 and my gain is actually 200,000, not the 125. And and what is that term that is used in the in the accounting world, in the tax world? for that, that specific situation that you're referring to? Uh, the basis reduction or yes. the recapture of depreciation? Yeah, okay, so recapture yep. depreciation. Recapture now, depreciation. the amount that is reduced on your basis, so you had used the example of, I think, seven years, so we mm -hmm. have $70,000 that's going to be, that's that we're gonna take our basis less 70,000. Now that amount, is that gonna be taxed at long-term capital gains tax rate or is that gonna be taxed at a different tax rate? So unfortunately, it's a little bit of a loaded question because it depends on other things like suspended losses and what you purchased it for. But for the most part, if I am doing recapture, it's at ordinary up to 25, okay? So so that's kind of where you're looking at. But so, so you got it at ordinary, right? Now you have to pay it back at ordinary. Again, more details than that because you've got suspended losses and other stuff mm -hmm. that you can take into consideration. And then another question that is coming from our subscribers as well is what about capital improvements? So how do capital yep. improvements impact our overall basis? So right now we're having really good depreciation uh, treatment here in the IRS codes, so which when I say good treatment, it means that we have the ability to take it over the lifespan of it or we can accelerate that depreciation, take it all in one lump sum. So, uh, and so for a lot of your improvements, a lot of your major improvements, you are supposed to capitalize it, which means that you basically are gonna depreciate it, right, instead of actually taking it. So let's take an example of a, um, let's say we put a pool on for $100,000, okay? Mm -hmm. In theory, I'm supposed to depreciate that over the lifetime of the value of the house. Well, and a pool's probably a bad example. Let's say a fence, a $50,000 fence. And I don't know right off the top of my head how long I have to depreciate that, but let's say it's 10 years, okay? Yep. So that means a $100,000 fence. I paid $100,000 cash for it, but I can't take a $100,000 deduction in that current year. I have to depreciate it over the 10 years, which is what the IRS determines the lifespan of that fence is. And so I get to take 10,000. But right now, we have a lot of different things, and I believe a fence is one of them, that I can accelerate the depreciation and I can take that full $100,000 in the current year. So would that be the same for, let's just say, I had to remodel the kitchen? Yes. So I bought this place, I had to redo the kitchen, and it was 100 grand in the kitchen. Again, every asset's a little different, but yes, the kitchen, you should be able to fully depreciate as well. Okay. Um, and, and, and there's strategies behind that, right? Sometimes it makes sense to take it all in the current year. Well, wouldn't you also, like, so for instance, how much did you make W-2 job? Sure. Does that play into it too? It can. It definitely can, right? Because if I'm only at the 10% tax bracket... No reason to accelerate the depreciation and get yep. it if I know that I'm going to be at the 30% tax bracket in five years from now. So there's definitely some strategies in when to take depreciation and when not to. And the beauty is right now, especially with this extra accelerated and bonus and 50% and all that type of stuff, that you can actually make those choices. Um, but... Again, we've talked about professionals and stuff. I strongly suggest to make sure to talk to a tax person because, again, what you don't know, you don't know. And this is one of those things where if you plug it into a system, most tax software systems 
will just do the bonus or they'll just do the flat 10 years. And you could be losing out on either side of that. So let me, I think the question, they're asking it for a tax question, but I think you're going to have to jump in on this one, right? So this is Dolly in Kansas. Dolly in Kansas says, how do I avoid estate taxes if I die on my five properties? And I mean, it's a loaded question, I feel like, because... You can go many different ways, but that's all the information that we. Well, have. you're talking about avoiding taxes, all right? We exactly. Gotta, we got to stop there. Yeah. Now, although we appreciate the question from our subscribers, the reality is, is there's really no way around taxes, right? Or to completely avoid taxes, at one point or another, you're going to pay them. Now, we talk a lot about IRAs and you know the ability to mitigate taxation, but uh, I think it's important to understand that in some instances, there's no way to evade taxes. But well, I'll flip it to you guys. Well, there is two, right? The two: you die in the property, or you 1031 exchange it. Right. Those are really the only and the 1031 exchange only kicks the can down the road. Sure. You end up paying it eventually. But, but, but those are more an analysis on capital gains tax. Correct. To, Correct. to, to answer her question, uh, maybe a, a, a couple minutes on on how estate taxes are different sure. than capital gains taxes is probably prudent. One, it depends on which state you live in. Yep. Right. So I practice in Florida. Florida has no state estate tax. Uh, but estate taxes in general work off of an exemption amount because estate taxes don't require a transaction. Estate taxes are based off of the total value of assets. So unlike a, a, a typical scenario where if you sold something, you pay taxes, taxes on your gain, in an estate tax scenario, the taxes are based on the value of everything you own getting appraised, added up, and then subtracted from an exemption amount. So I'm going to use... $10 million is an exemption amount as an example, because the federal exemption is currently even higher than that. It's about $11.5 million per spouse. But we'll use $10 million to make our, our discussion uh, a, a little bit more relevant. If, if the exemption is $10 million, and these five properties, plus everything else that this, this woman owns, yep. adds up to $8 million, you pay zero estate taxes. In Florida? Well, and, and on federal. the federal level. Oh, okay. Right, federal and on the federal level. level. So... If everything she owns adds up to $11 million, then your estate tax is basically applied against the $1 million that you're over the exemption. Got so it. it's almost a different way of calculating uh, net worth, how much tax is owed, and what your exposure is. Um, there are all types of gifting and planning strategy that, strategies that can be used to try to mitigate that. Obviously, if the asset numbers are high, there's only so much that can be done. But there's a tremendous amount that can be done to mitigate that. And I would strongly, strongly advise her to talk to her local estate planning attorney or tax advisor about that specifically, if that's her concern. Can you touch on a little bit, and I know you did a great job in the previous episode, but let's say she's holding those five, uh, five properties in an LLC because she listened to what we should do, yeah. right? But there's no, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to go to probate. Correct. So if those LLCs are set up and she owns the membership in those LLCs by herself, then there's going to be a probate to transfer the ownership in those LLCs to her heirs. Now, some people will say to transfer the properties. No, we're not transferring the properties. The properties are owned by these corporate entities. Yep. We're transferring the ownership in the entity to her heirs, to her family. And probate, very quick definition is? It's a court-driven process where the will is filed and administered in accordance with the, the law of that particular state. Every state is different, but in general, probate can be, can be time-consuming and expensive depending on what state you're in complexity of the assets. It also provides a forum for aggrieved family members to come in, file objections to things. It's a very public forum. 
So check out the episode with Jeff, where yep. we have Jeff exclusively. He actually goes into revocable trusts and talks a little bit more about estate planning. So check that out. All right, so let's talk about taxes now. So Jeff just talked about the estate tax, right? That's 11 plus million dollars per person. But let's say that they, that it was five properties or each, they bought them each for $100,000. And now we're way under the limit of the 11 million. Yep. So everything goes to their child, free and clear without estate taxes being owed. But now that child at some point in time is gonna have to sell those properties, okay? And there's gonna be capital gains on the sale of that property. Now, if the mother, in this case, had bought them for $100,000 and she had transferred it to her daughter before she died, she would get the same basis as the mother. But if she actually dies with the properties, she gets what's called a stepped up basis which basically means this, is that upon death, if the property was worth $200,000, the daughter would now have a new basis of 200,000 instead of the 100 before. And this is a really good law because, um, you know, we saw it a lot with farms back before this was around, is that there'd be generational wealth being handed down. These huge sure. properties and these huge farms, and they would actually have to pay taxes on it if they were trying to keep it and they just couldn't hold it. So by doing a stepped up basis, it allows people to keep it in and not be forced to sell. And if they do sell, they're not losing a whole bunch of the, the profit from it. Um, so stepped up basis is a good thing. Now, I'm sure if anyone's been paying attention to what's going on in Congress and with the president, there's been a lot of talk of getting rid of stepped up basis or severely uh, limiting that. Um, luckily, uh, for at least from this standpoint, um, that's not gone anywhere right now. We still have our stepped up basis and it's still a good tool to use. But one of the biggest mistakes I see people do is do a quick claim deed from the mother to the children right before death because yeah. they think it'll be simpler. Sure. Right. And in reality, especially if the mother's been living in that property for 25 years or something, she may have bought it for $10,000 and it's now worth 600,000. And by transferring it, they take on the original basis and have to pay taxes on all the gain when they sell it, where if they had held it until death, there would have been a stepped up basis and no tax would have been paid. Does it matter whether it's a primary residence or like an investment property? It does not. Okay. It and, does not. And then the uh, one last item on this is we're talking about stepped-up basis. Uh, you had mentioned that the stepped-up basis value is going to be based on, you know, when that person passes away and then mm -hmm. the, the title transfers. How do we determine what the value is at that time? Do we get a licensed appraiser coming yeah. to do an appraisal? So BPO the best thing, work? right, best thing is a licensed appraisal. By far is the best thing. I strongly suggest that there's a lot of gain, especially, to do that. Um, but any document, to some extent, has, has sufficed for, with the IRS. Some people will just pull up Zillow. Some people will do BPOs from real estate agents. There's different ways to do it, but the best is an appraisal. That'll give you a stone, you know, it's a professional. Right, that does it. So the IRS is going to look at that with more weight. So I'd imagine if, again, if you're an entry-level real estate investor and you're just starting your journey, or if you're intermediate and you have five properties, six properties, everything we're preaching so far is sit down with a professional. Sit down with a Jeff Grant. And you're going to want to talk about, yes, asset protection, but you're also going to want to talk about that succession planning that you talked about, right? And really what you're going to want to say is, because you think about how does your family know to go get those things appraised, they wouldn't know. Correct. 
unless they had an attorney that's going to go to and say, we're immediately going to get these things appraised or have some sort of appraisal in the queue to be able to take advantage of the stepped-up basis. Yeah, luckily with technology, right, we can, we can find ways, right? I can pull up at Zillow the houses that sold on that block from 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, okay. we may not have been able to do that. So there are ways that we can get around it. But if again, like anything else, planning, if you can do the planning up front, if you can do it from the beginning, you have your best chances of getting the best bang for your buck and be able to do it. I'm sure Jeff works with people all the time on making sure to have these conversations where they say, should I quit claim it over to my children? And Jeff would say, no, maybe not from an estate standpoint, but from a tax standpoint, don't do that. And here's the other two or three things you can do. Sure. It's, it's, it's almost a whole other segment of itself, but it is a call we get at the office quite frequently. It's... You know, I want to put my kids untitled to my property. And I, can, time, and I can give you a half an hour off the cuff of the, the bad reasons why not mm -hmm. to do that. Yep. Um, there are, and there are a few good, right? There's some mm -hmm. things, right, we, yes. you know, with, with, especially with like nursing homes and some things like that. There's some strategies to do that. So we're not saying it's not sometimes the right answer. Sure. It's just what we find is a lot of people heard from a friend who heard from a friend of that they should transfer it into their kids because it'll make life so much easier. And it does, it avoids probate, but it causes all the other problems as well. So you're trying to find the solution, right? And that's why it's great to go talk with a Jeff, go talk with a, someone like myself to find that solution that works for you and checks as many of those boxes off that are beneficial for you. I'm so glad you brought that up, BJ, because one last item before you jump into sure. the history, like we always do, because I know you love the segments, James. You, we got to have segments if it's a real show. Absolutely. <laughs> so what, what I think is important, I, I learned from a wise real estate investor a long time ago. He said, John, he goes, if you take advice, such as things that we're talking about here, from a, an investor, okay, someone that's not a licensed professional, all right, are you, when, when, when things go really bad, are you going to be able to go back and, and get a, have a claim against that person. No, you're not, right? That's why you go to a licensed CPA, you go to a licensed real estate attorney, you go to a licensed attorney to have these types of conversations because they're the ones that understand this. They're the ones that have access to all this information. They're the ones that are practicing law. That's why they call it practicing law or practicing tax accounting. And so that's why, again, I just really want to stress for all of our viewers why you need to take this information and start to organize it and then go to your, your local professional, and then you can have a more intelligent and faster conversation with that person because that person, Jeff, for example, he doesn't have to spend two hours in his office educating you. You're already past that learning curve, and you can have a lot more intelligent conversation with that person. You're going to be a better client for them, and I don't want to make any claims here, but maybe they'll actually charge you less for the work that they're doing. Well, so listen, we're here on the Building Equity Podcast. We're talking real estate, investors, entry level, intermediate level. We're sitting here with Jeff Grant, Florida attorney from the law firm of Grant Cottrell Miller Myers. We're with BJ Cottrell from Cottrell Tax and Accounting. And here's the last thing I want to just, if you guys could leave, leave uh, uh, final wisdom to our listeners. So Jeff, we'll start with you. The number one mistake you would say somebody that is brand new getting into real estate investing, if they could avoid this mistake, it would be what? It would be not planning in advance. Not planning in advance. Not planning in advance. Planning in, planning in advance is less expensive and far more efficient than us having to go back and correct what was done and back, in, and back into certain items. I'm sure BJ will probably sure. echo this. So when I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, this attorney wants to charge me 2,500 bucks to do this. I just want to go 
on, uh, I'm going to say, LegalZoom or go to Office Depot and get these documents myself or whatever, it's you're creating a, you could create a mess for yourself. The cost to correct it and the time that it takes to correct it is significantly more than the cost to do it correctly the first time. And what would you say, BJ? Yeah, I was going to say something similar. You know, don't be penny wise, right? Especially at the beginning, right? I get that you're trying to generate, you know, revenue to be able to buy houses and stuff and every dollar matters and I get that. But again, I keep iterating the what I don't know, I don't know. If you don't reach out to a professional and spend that money up front to get the right advice, the amount you can lose in the back end it can be just crazy. In that example we talked about where the mother may have bought it for $10,000 and it's now worth $500,000, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of $75,000 difference in that deal. Yep. That's, I mean, that is... You know, the the $1,000, the $2,000, the $3,000 bill that you may have to do to get things set up properly is so small compared yep. to a possible $75,000 difference. And you won't know it until it's too late. And that's why we always suggested make sure that you meet with professionals and get your ducks in a row at the beginning. Not only does it cost more to correct it later, sometimes you can't correct it later and you're stuck with that bill, especially with the IRS. See, I thought if we had an accountant on the, on the set <laughs> and we had a lawyer, it was going to be like a fist fight or a battle royal. It turned out you guys got along fairly well. Right, we do. So well, you're, you got your lanes, right? Yep. And they're, they're in their lanes and they're working together. And you, James, you know, I'm, I'm really big on, on building a financial team. Yep. You know, having your attorney. And sometimes that's, that's more than one attorney. You know, I've worked with more than one attorney on real estate transactions. I have one attorney that I know of that's very good at kind of the creative deal structuring side. So if we want to do an equity participation loan, drafting notes and mortgages, closing loans, things of that nature, he's very good at that. And then another attorney that's very good at evictions and entity formation. Sure. So I'll use him for those particular sure. areas. And so I think that's another th important thing for our viewers to understand, subscribers to understand, is that... You know, you're not limited to just one attorney or, or one CPA. You might be working with multiple, depending on your situation. And then beyond that, right, you have your title company. So you're probably going to become pretty loyal to one specific title company. You mentioned IRA Title Pro. So for Big people, that are, yeah, people <laughs> that are are closing IRA transactions, they want to work with a IRA-friendly title company. Yeah, you want to have an experienced closing team that knows how to get these deals done quick, fast, inexpensive, with less hassle. Exactly, and I think BJ mentioned it before as well, and then I'll conclude, which is having a relationship with that person and understanding their specific needs as they understand their specific needs. And then you, as an investor, also start to understand that professional, i.e. attorney, CPA, whoever it might be, and understanding where their strengths and weaknesses are. So you know when you should go to them for certain work and when you shouldn't go to to them for certain work because you want to I also look at it as respecting their time sure, sure. and I appreciate you guys coming on the show today you guys have it's invested been awesome. a lot of time yeah. and this is a lot of good information a lot of content and you know I think that it's a lot of content that we're not really seeing out there in other episodes and other educational formats you know I'll tell you also for kind of piggybacking on that is interview these people right ask some questions because there's people you know I may not know everything to know about public 
publicly traded companies, right? That's not my lane. My lane, we, we kind of have a tagline, all things real estate, you know, real estate agents, things like that. Jeff, it, you know, does estate planning, does that, but he also has a tie-in with real estate and he focuses on real estate as well. So there are people out there that spend more time in real estate and doing things of that nature than not. Same thing with yours, right? Closing with IRAs, right? There's some nuances to that sure. that makes them more valuable. So make sure to interview, just don't go to the, you know, the person that's around the corner. I'm gonna so. give a Easter egg for some of the folks because if, if you go back and you watch just BJ's episode, on taxes and then you watch just Jeff's, right? We didn't share information with the two of you guys on, on what we were gonna discuss. I mean, we had an initial call, but there was so much congruency between what you're, you're planning and really for asset protection and what you're saying and over here. And it's so easy for somebody that doesn't know just to go take a right turn when both of your professionals would have said go left and they would have been in harmony and you really get yourself into a pickle. Absolutely. And James, I'm really big, as you know, we've been talking about on all our episodes is the Real Estate Investor Clubs. And yep. for those of you that aren't familiar, just do an internet search, Real Estate Investor Club or Real Estate Investor Association in your local market, you'll find a group of investors that meet with one another. So if you're looking for, if you're asking, hey, how do I find an attorney? How do I even start the interviewing process? Go find other real estate investors, which is really easy to do, and ask them who do they use. Sure. You can do that in your state. You're going to find somebody good. If you're in Florida, I'm going to say look up Jeff Grant at the law firm of Grant Cottrell Miller Myers. If you're in Florida, tax purposes, look up BJ Cottrell with Cottrell Tax and Accounting. Thank you, guys. we got to finish our segment because John Bowens loves his segment. History. And we got to talk about what's in history. But we can't only talk about what's in history. It's brought to you by Equity Trust. So you have to unleash your inner real estate mogul. Discover your potential as an investor by maximizing the power and possibilities of buying and selling real estate with your retirement account. I don't know if you knew this, John, but people can buy and sell real estate with their IRA. I know that. You did know that? I, I did know that. Some would say he's like the leading expert in the country on this, just for the record. <laughs> so uh, U.S. News calls in the top seven IRA accounts for 2022. Investopedia says best overall self-directed IRA company with $34 billion in assets under custody. Start the conversation today at trustetc.com. And here's our little favorite part. So let's bring it up, see what we're talking. This is coming from, this is the Daily National Intelligencer. This is from March 24th, 1856. And it's all about the law of landlord and tenant. And I'm gonna just leave it with the fact that in here, and I know you brought up just a nugget of, you may have an attorney that just focuses on landlord tenant. And I know you can go in depth. The laws are different. Like you could be great at real estate transfer law or dirt law. And then there's landlord tenant. Yeah. Different game, right? Whole other universe. Whole different universe. They're talking about it in 1856 in this article. And you know what? I guess apparently landlords were having trouble with tenants in 1856. Go this figure. Is, and, and James, this is really important. And, and I know that we'll have an episode in the future about this where we'll probably bring someone in specifically about evictions. And this is gonna be very you know, market specific as well. So we wanna be careful when we talk about you know, landlord-tenant laws. Yep. Uh, but you know, uh, think about it in an eviction process. There's a lot that can go wrong in that process. And if you misstep, um, and Jeff, feel free to chime in here, but you know, my understanding is it could go beyond just penalties and fines if you misstep on that. The, the penalties are significant. In, in an eviction process if it goes wrong. I mean, you could, the tenant could have the right to stay there, you could jam up the property, you could have to pay, uh, in Florida, some of the penalties are three times a month's rent. Wow. 
to the tenant. So evictions tend to be formulaic. They are very state specific. Um, I would highly, highly recommend talking to a local attorney. So in other words, if you do need to evict a tenant, and it happens, right? It's reality. It does happen. You know, there's ways to minimize that, which we'll talk about in another episode in terms of how to manage your tenants. We were just talking about earlier about, mm -hmm. you know, showing up with, with a gift, for example. Or, for or your, managing your, your residence, right? Right, managing your residence, correct. We call them residents, You're training me. Right, that's right. And so, you know, that's why it's so important, you know, rather than trying to handle your own evictions, you know, hire a licensed professional to do that. I've heard so many stories of people that, Maybe they don't have fines and penalties or make mistakes, but they're spending all this time going through this process and having to go to court and all of that when you could have paid a legal professional to do all that work for you and give you back more time to go out and find the next opportunity. It's been a great, great conversation. Thank you guys again for joining the Building Equity Podcast for Real Estate Investors. John, we are delivering on what we said we wanted to do. I don't know how many episodes we're in now, but we're bringing real estate professionals. We're talking about items that we know are not being covered in the space. And uh, I couldn't be happier, and I'm really looking forward to the next show. Yeah, absolutely, James. And again, for all of our viewers, check out, if you love BJ and Jeff, we have individual segments specifically where we have them here in the studio, and we are just drilling them with questions. So until the next one, James, as I always say, keep building wealth through compounding interest in the absence of taxation. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, man.